Welcome to Dig, the History Podcast. AIDS Project of the Ozarks and the similar service organizations around the country served a population deeply in need of support, care, and medical attention in the midst of a crisis. AIDS Project of the Ozarks, or APO, as we'll more or less refer to it um, throughout this episode, is a particularly interesting organization because of where it was founded, who founded it, and how it thrived in a place that had every potential to be disastrous. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Sarah Hanley Cousins. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. In the late 1970s and early 80s, gay men in Springfield, Missouri began to mysteriously die. Most of them had returned home to Missouri after living in bigger cities like New York and L.A., sick and in need of comfort and care. But instead of getting better, they just withered and died. It quickly became clear in Missouri and around the country that gay men were dying of the same disease. In these first uncertain years, doctors and the media, as flabbergasted as the victims themselves, called the disease GRID, or Gay-Related Infectious Disease, or sometimes the gay cancer. In 1983, doctors finally gained a working knowledge of this horrific affliction, and it was called what it was. Let me do that again. And it was called what it was, the Human Immunodeficiency Virus and Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or HIV-AIDS. Because it was closely associated with men who had sex with men, the disease was feared and loathed, and little money or attention was devoted to stopping its rise. In Springfield, as in so many other American cities, the families, friends, and allies of these dying gay men felt the need to do something, if not to fight back against the disease, then at least to provide aid and comfort to those who suffered. Today, we're talking about the founding of AIDS Project of the Ozarks and the sad but inspiring story of how some queer Missourians, 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 sure, okay, Missourians fought back against the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. In the late 1960s and the 1970s, the gay liberation movement in the United States made gay men and women visible in the United States in a way that they never had been before. While gay Americans had won some attention and perhaps a little more space in American politics, they'd also raised the ire of some serious opponents. In just one horrifying incident, an anti-gay politician murdered Harvey Milk, the first openly gay elected official in California's history. The gay rights movement also inspired a broader reaction. Led by the conservative and evangelical Republican factions that were gaining popularity in the larger backlash to the wild and free culture of the 1960s. This is something we usually refer to as the rise of the new right. The more visible and out gay men and women became, the more vitriolic their opponents became in their attempts to curb gay rights. 
So it was in this environment in 1980, uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s, that gay men began to die. Or more accurately, doctors began to connect the dots between numerous mysterious deaths of gay men. They all seemed to be dying of the same thing, though they sometimes exhibited slightly different symptoms. At first, it seemed like a bad case of flu, but autopsies revealed an extremely serious type of pneumonia called pneumocystis carini pneumonia. Others exhibited skin lesions called Kaposi sarcoma, a rare kind of skin cancer. What they all seemed to have in common was their host's queerness. In 1981, the New York Times reported on a concerning outbreak located largely in New York and L.A. It emphasized the sexuality of the victims. Not only their homosexuality, but their apparent promiscuity, suggesting that several of the patients had had up to 10 sexual encounters a night, up to four times a week. That's a lot of sex. That's... And even if they had been... Right. Right? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. No. Like, Like, you get some when you want it, right? It's kind of the dream, right? Yeah. So... But it's the the combination of kind of wanton promiscuity, lots Mm -hmm. of sexual partners, and the fact that it's men having sex with men. Right. And in addition to promiscuity and gayness, the mm-hmm. media was also linking these men to using recreational drugs and that they had been treated for other sexually transmitted infections in the past. Yeah, th- we'll link to this New York Times article. It's really, uh, I don't know, it's really a treat to read um, because it's like layered on in this like, you know, it's there's this scary outbreak. And of course, that always scares people in the way mm-hmm. that like Ebola scared people. Um, there's a scary outbreak. It's being spread by these sexual deviants who are taking all of these weird and mysterious new drugs and then having sex with each other and these wild orgies. Um, and of course, Britain and New York Times speak, but it, it's kind of adding to this hysterical atmosphere. And just a note about this whole promiscuity angle, which obviously is being vilified by the New York Times very overtly, but... Another aspect of Ellie's dissertation that we aren't actually going to talk about today in great detail or at all is Ellie's chapter on the normal heart, which is a play. And you can you can watch this because um, the was HBO made mm-hmm. a made a yeah, uh, yeah. Like a, drama, f- a movie a movie version, version just a couple years ago. I yeah. Think. And one of the things that the characters in that play discuss is that. So long, this community of men had fought to have the right to have sex with whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted, to go to wild sex parties, and they weren't going to stop doing that, no matter, and and they believe that, you know, some of them believe that this, this, this disease was, you know, a conspiracy by the government to Mm -hmm. eliminate the gays and Mm -hmm. all this other stuff, so uh, there's all kinds of layers of tension and, uh, how people got involved in fighting AIDS, in supporting AIDS victims, mm-hmm. in dealing with the AIDS crisis and, is and really how, complicated. Yeah, and how gay men themselves tried to make sense of it and yeah. tried to continue to live their lives right. through the epidemic. Yes. I know that there's a book, I, I believe it was a book that was written at some point during it that was called How to Have Sex in a Plague. Mm-hmm. And it was about, like, how do you date how do you continue to have those needs met yeah. uh, when you could die from right. the from these interactions? And this is also all at a time where none of this is very well understood. There's, Absolutely. There's, yeah. Condom use isn't even that that widespread or that accepted. Not, I mean, condoms yeah. existed, but 
um, their use wasn't established maybe in the way that it is. Fingers crossed it is now. Use a condom. Within months, the Associated Press was reporting that the number of deaths had increased that same year, 1981, from 40 to 100. And by the end of the year, it had risen to 121. In 1982, what had been known alternately, as we mentioned before, the gay cancer, the gay plague, or this gay-related infectious disease or GRID, was officially renamed Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or AIDS. The deaths quickly mounted. By the end of 1989, 27,408 people had died of this disease. I, I, again, I just want to pause here. Think of the hysteria, the, the just the crazy media hysteria, social media hysteria, too, mm-hmm. around Ebola. Yeah. And how many people in the United States suffered from Ebola? I think it was like three. Yeah. And, and a couple of them didn't even actually have Ebola. They were just people who had visited e- places that ha- that were had outbreaks, had outbreaks mm-hmm. and then came home and they were forced into quarantine and that and just crazy level of hysteria. And think about if it was 27,000 people yeah. dying, you know, it, it's this was um, really intense. The result of these quickly mounting death tolls was terror, misinformation, stigma, and ostracism. For many who opposed homosexuality, the deaths actually seemed to be proof that it was a sin and that AIDS was a punishment that was sent by God, Um, an idea that has taken a long time to go away and maybe hasn't completely gone away. It also seemed to confirm pre-existing notions about gay people and gay sex, that they were promiscuous, that anything other than penis in vagina sex was deviant and unhealthy, even that gay men would have sex with anyone or anything, including animals, especially when theories developed that AIDS had first originated in apes. Nearly all AIDS cases were located in or at least originated in New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. But many of the gay men who lived in these cities were from other places. When they became sick and needed the care of their friends and families, they often returned home, bringing the disease with them. The sexual decadence and experimentation associated with gay men was also associated with the cities. Um, but as suffering gay men returned home, they brought the reality of AIDS and queer life into the heartland of conservative America. Just as an aside, this really is not to say that there were no queer people in rural America, obviously. There had been gay bars in Missouri for decades, at least since the 1940s, if not earlier, as Ellie's dissertation points right, to. Right, right, right. But the reality was that it was easier to be queer in the city. Where, as it is now. As it is now, absolutely, to be, you know, sexually experimental in mm-hmm. the city. Or to find your people. Yeah, right? find communities. Um, <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, and to be safer uh, amid the hustle and bustle of, of people who didn't know you or care about you mm-hmm. or the things that you did. Right, right, right. Which is true of the United States, true of the world. Mm-hmm. Springfield, Missouri is actually a really good example of this. Missouri is in the Bible Belt, which comes as no surprise to any of you. Um, Ellie has an anecdote in the dissertation about John Ashcroft, the former attorney general under George W. Bush, who was from Springfield. 
Uh, and the story is about him being so religious that he held daily Bible study classes in his office and actually instructed aides to cover up the naked breasts of statues that were around the Department of Justice. Clutching his pearls. Couldn't bear to look at them, right? Uh, Springfield was also the home of the global headquarters of the Assemblies of God, a fundamentalist Pentecostal church, super, super fundamental um, very conservative. And it's also the home to several religious colleges and seminaries. So we're talking about a super conservative and a super religious town. Yeah. And really, this religiousness wasn't contained to the conservatives. Um, it was actually a group of 14 religious people, people who attended church regularly, some Catholics, some Baptists, even some Pentecostals, who came together to found AIDS Project of Springfield, which was later renamed AIDS Project of the Ozarks as they expanded their reach into the rural areas around Springfield. For one of the founders, a man named Jim House, it was an incident with a young man helped by APO early in its existence that sort of encapsulated why the project was so necessary. And we actually have a clip of the oral history that Ellie collected from Jim House about those early days of APS, and we'll play that now. One kid, his parents, he got really, really sick, and they threw him in a pigsty on the other farm. That's where you, you live out there now. You don't live in the house anymore. And they, we had to basically save him from that, and he didn't—he didn't live much longer than that. So there was some problems. This dying boy's family was afraid to have him in the house, but unable to turn him away completely. It's the sort of heartbreaking scenario that wasn't uncommon particularly in this very conservative, very religious area. Having this disease meant obviously, well, meant to the people in this place that you were gay. And that was a problem. But presumably for a lot of Christian people, turning away your own children in their time of need was problematic too. Right. And folks just didn't understand what HIV AIDS was or how to deal with it. Right. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand the disinformation that was out there about this disease. It helps us to understand just why the founding and the work of APO was so important. And I think that um, I have a suspicion, and I don't know, especially because I'm an old and, you know, I'm off the market and I'm not, you know, dating and part of these cultures anymore. But I think that conversations about HIV AIDS are very different now. Yes. And people are not. The, the terror isn't no. there anymore that there was, even when I was in high school, right? There, that was still the worst of the worst. It was, even though it wasn't true, even though there were medications at the time I was going through school, it was still to treat it. thought of as a death yeah. sentence. But it, yeah, because you could treat it then and extend mm-hmm. life. Now you can get vaccinated. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And you can, you can live... A, a normal life yeah. with HIV AIDS, yeah. which was not the case at the time. Right. In in Springfield, as everywhere in the United States, there was a hysteria about the transmission of AIDS. People thought that you can contract AIDS by sharing utensils and water fountains or even just by shaking hands. This fear permeated even those closest to the actual disease. Individuals whose friends or loved ones fell ill we're afraid to be physically close to that person. That's why we get these stories of, you know, this young man being kind of relegated to the barn right. because his family is afraid that if they keep him in the house, maybe everyone will get AIDS. Right. 
At first, a significant portion of APO's mission was simply to try to counteract that kind of misinformation. And most of its early and very, very tiny budget went to buying condoms and printing and disseminating literature on safe sex. They just didn't have the budget to take on projects that other groups in larger cities were implementing, such as rent assistance programs, which were important for people who could no longer work. Right. Um, or who were fired because they were outed as having AIDS and being gay. Right. But another thing APO did take on was known as the Buddy Program, which also attempted to take on the stigma of AIDS. Many people with the disease, particularly in Springfield and other such communities, were essentially being shunned. And, uh, and ostracized by their communities, by their families, even their friends. Uh, uh, Ellie recounts the story of a man who was kicked out of his church choir, his major network of friends and acquaintances after he was diagnosed. The Buddy Program assigned APO volunteers to people with AIDS who helped them do anything from going grocery shopping to organizing their medications to mowing their lawns. Uh, most importantly, they were simply present in the lives of those with the disease, ensuring that they weren't alone. That hysteria about AIDS didn't go away, though, and it wasn't limited to urban legends about how AIDS was transmitted. It was also expressed in the fear and violence that APO faced from anti-gay groups. This is reflected in the oral histories that Ellie collected from the early members of APS-APO, like Lynn Meyercord. We have a clip of her recounting some of those fears. We had to be really careful at that time. If somebody wanted to come to the support group, we'd meet with them like via phone and stuff first. We didn't publish publish when our support group meeting was or where because mm-hmm. people were kind of nuts and we didn't know if they would, right. you know, we would get bomb threats from time to time. Okay. Um, the support group and AP AP Spring, or, Project Springfield. Sorry. Yeah, yes. that's okay. And the, you know, I told you that the guy that owned the building didn't want our name on the marquee. And we were okay with that. We didn't want our name on the marquee either. Because um, there was still a level of fear. You didn't know. There's a lot of nut jobs, obviously. Mm-hmm. So at that time when we had support group, I would have a preliminary meeting with them first to make sure it wasn't someone who just wanted to see who was positive. Um, to make sure it wasn't someone who wanted to injure the people who had AIDS and get rid of them. Because that's when you had the quarantine discussion going on and, the, you know, all that crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. So we were very careful. Um, happy to say the only people who ever really threatened to shoot us were our clients. So it was a very scary time to be a part of this very needed organization. But it also was just such a crucial time. The support group that Meyercord describes here is another of the key services that then APS and now APO provided the people living and dying with HIV AIDS. So beyond combating stigma through educational initiatives and being the boots on the ground in that fight, the central role of APO was always to help these people who were so desperately in need, who were isolated by their sexuality and by their disease. The larger fear and stigma that shrouded AIDS impacted funding for scientific research and support for people with the disease. By the late 1980s, President Ronald Reagan had finally acknowledged the crisis and noting that he, you know, he's the president throughout the 80s. He doesn't actually make a public statement about this actual epidemic until 1987. Even when his close friend, Rock Hudson, Hudson yep. was dying of AIDS and begged him and Nancy for help. For Mm -hmm. him personally, not Mm -hmm. even just for AIDS in general or gay people in general and Ronald Reagan 
ignored him. Ignored him. Until 1987. So he made a speech in 1987 at the American Foundation for AIDS Research, or AMFAR, at their awards dinner, where, in, I don't know, I guess classic Reagan style, he outlined his intentions to establish new initiatives to test federal prison inmates and immigrants for HIV-AIDS, um, as well as mandating couples be tested before they could marry. Initiatives that carried strong and scary echoes of the golden age of eugenics in the United States when disabled people were segregated and treated as potential disease vectors rather than citizens because of their health. Right. And that reinforces, too, what kinds of people they believe carry and spread this disease. Mm -hmm. When, as everyone, as we all know now, and as I think was at least known or suspected then, Anyone can get, anyone can transmit HIV. Absolutely, right? yeah. And already the U.S. military was carrying out these very invasive tests on their soldiers. AIDS activists worried that this kind of testing would be used to justify discrimination, an already widespread problem. Um, people were being outed as having HIV AIDS, or people out, people who were outed as having HIV AIDS were fired from their jobs or barred from certain public places. This is, of course, the premise for the critically acclaimed 1993 film Philadelphia, in which Tom Hanks's character contracts AIDS, is fired from his job, and wants to sue for wrongful termination. Each lawyer that he approaches turns him down, but upon seeing firsthand the way people treat Hanks in the film, Denzel Washington's lawyer character seems to identify with him as a black man in a predominantly white-dominated field, and in a legal system that actively works against men of color. Even in that film, the issue, the issues of stigma and misinformation are central to the plot. Denzel's character himself is homophobic and concerned that he might contract the disease from any kind of contact with Tom Hanks's character. Of course, the stigma also influenced funding, which is where the rubber hits the road. In 1987, North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms took to the floor of the Senate to give an inflammatory speech about federal AIDS research funding. He had a pamphlet from the organization Gay Men's Health Crisis called After the Gym, which was a fairly graphic comic produced by Gay Men's Health Crisis, GMHC, to promote safer sex. Its approach was, hey, gay men are going to have sex. We need to find fun and accessible ways of teaching them to use condoms. Right. And uh, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, how to have sex in a plague, right? Mm -hmm. Pe people are still going to have sex, mm -hmm. even if... There's this threat out there. So how yeah. are we, if they're going to keep having sex, how are we going to teach people to do it in the least risky way possible? Yeah. But Helms viewed the pamphlet as pornography and railed against the fact that A's research money had been used in its production. You know, whenever I read about a politician giving this kind of self-righteous speech, I automatically picture there being just this gigantic locked box under their bed full of porn right and full of like really dirty porn mm -hmm. like like really kinky like two girls one cup not quite that gross okay. <laughs> excuse me i shouldn't kink shame i apologize not gross that um that specific oh, shall no, we say because no. you know but like boner jams await yeah like but you know you know that jesse helms was you know, getting it on mm. with his bad self. 
Anyway, the purpose of Jesse Helms's rant was to bring attention to an amendment he had placed on a federal spending bill, call, later called the Helms Amendment, which blocked federal funding to any AIDS education or prevention materials that promote or encourage directly or indirectly homosexual sexual activities. That's a direct quote. And as those things always go... No federal funds had been used in creating the pamphlet, and the JMHC was extremely careful about how they used money in an attempt to avoid these very situations. What does that sound like? Mm. Oh, that's right. Planned Parenthood. Mm. Uh, the Helms Amendment was a major obstacle to fighting AIDS, but other funding sources did become available. In 1990, Congress passed the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency Act, or the Ryan White Care Act, which was named for teenage Ryan White, a young man with hemophilia who contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion. Ryan was the target of intense discrimination, including being barred from attending school because of his potential to spread the disease. And he and his mother were powerful activists. In no small part, his story was so effective in bringing about legislation because he was a sick and passive child, Mm -hmm. not a gay man. He had not... Uh, gotten AIDS through any fault of his own. He hadn't been participating in, quote-unquote, deviant activities. And so it made it much more palatable Mm -hmm. once people realized that, oh, um, and this is something else I think Ellie mentions at one point in her... her, This is something else I think Ellie mentions at some point in the project, um, which is how AIDS babies, quote-unquote, AIDS babies, sometimes changed Mm -hmm. the, the rhetoric around the disease. Yeah. As soon as the act was passed... APO applied for a grant and became one of the first agencies in the country to receive funding from a Ryan White grant. This funding was critical to APO, making it possible for them to seek out larger offices and offer more services. And I also want to point out that another reason APO was able to hang on, even in the face of this discrimination and stigma, was that public health officials like Harold Bench, who was the commissioner of public health in Springfield, Framed AIDS not as a gay issue, but as a public health crisis. Which yeah. it was. Which it was. I mean, it was also a gay issue. It was. You shouldn't say that it wasn't. But. Right. But he brought right. wider mm-hmm. acceptance to it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And, and by, by framing it that way. Exactly. While in larger cities like New York and L.A., AIDS activism was was focused on gay men, Springfield and APO took a slightly different uh, approach. Other AIDS organizations in the area were small and or even failed because of the intense stigma of same-sex sex. But Springfield's approach of framing it as a health crisis rather than as a moral one helped it to thrive. They also had the benefit uh, of having two infectious disease doctors in the city who joined the organization, helping to frame the activism as fighting a disease rather than condoning same-sex sex. For those fighting the AIDS epidemic, the most commonly shared experience was death. APO, too, was touched by death, and not just of the patients that they helped care for. Gary Hogart, one of the organization's earliest executive directors, who was instrumental in landing that Ryan White grant, was diagnosed with AIDS shortly after getting the good news about the funding. Hogart had been a powerful leader for the group, and his diagnosis left his colleagues worried about what would come next. Hogart passed away in 1991. Cheers. AIDS Project of the Ozarks, it turns out, was one of the success stories of the AIDS crisis. As other organizations petered out or just simply failed, APO is still at work 
today in Springfield, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Currently, there are five part-time and 35 full-time employees serving 29 counties in Southwest Missouri, 24 of which have been designated as rural. Rural. Do I say that weird? Rural. 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 As rural. The story of APO is so important for so many reasons, but I think for me, what I find striking about it is that it helps us to remember that the AIDS crisis was not contained to cities and that it affected people in so-called middle America, too. Yeah, and I think the the reason that I think it's so critical today is that we've been having an awful lot of conversation recently about this so-called you know, cultural divide between urban and rural, between liberal elite coasts and conservative blue-collar rural areas in the United States. And stories like APO remind us that this is just really not an accurate view of the United States, either today or historically. You know, gay people might have congregated in the cities as a way to find their communities, but they also lived and loved and died in the rural South and in the West. And AIDS was a major concern in Springfield, Missouri, and Buffalo, New York, and I don't know, Cleveland, Ohio, and I, I'm trying to name small and cities. Williamstown, and Vermont. Tallahatchie, I don't know where that is. Um, you know, it it was as much of a concern, as much of a crisis in the small cities, in the villages, in the towns, as much as it was in New York City. Yeah. And I think that actually, you know, I mean, I'm a historian of LGBTQ history, so I have read a lot about this period and about this issue, and one of the things that is absent, really, in the historiography or what we call the history of the history in the writing on this topic is writing on these on small cities, middle-sized cities, rural America. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the major works and most of the follow-up works to those major works are all about LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, right? Places like Springfield, Missouri don't Mm -hmm. get talked about. The fact that Ellie is writing this dissertation is really, I mean, it's just really important. Yeah. And one of the other things that Ellie spent some time on are, you know, queer communities in Missouri, specifically lesbian separatists. Mm-hmm. Um, communities. Communities. In yeah. rural Missouri. In very, very yeah. rural. Very, yes. very rural. And like you said, that's so important. We think about um, gay history. We think about Stonewall. Yeah. You know, we think about... Um, or even that that gay history doesn't start until Stonewall, right? Oh yeah, that's sort yeah. of a yeah, dominant yeah. narrative that unfortunately a lot of colleges teach. Like, if gay history mm-hmm. makes it into a U.S. survey, it's probably about right. Stonewall. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been guilty of that myself in mm-hmm. in my U.S. history survey courses because it's just difficult to weave those stories in sometimes yeah. when you've got you know so much other stuff kind of dominating the narrative. Um, Oh, I take that back. I do talk about gay people before I get to Stonewall because I talk about the Lavender Scare. Oh, yeah. That's um, a little bit before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 50s. Have we ever had an episode on that? No. We will. Yeah, let's do it. Um, but I think it's an important reminder that um, gay people are just going to normal Americans. And normal <laughs> Americans live everywhere. You know, yeah. they don't just live in the city. Right. And that's true of, you know, so many different groups. Liberals. Um Academics, what, what, however you want to phrase that. Um, mm-hmm. People of color, right? We yeah. think about people of color and we think about cities. Yeah. And there are people of color who live in rural areas too. There are 
people of color who are farmers. Right. You know, there are black cowboys. Like, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but just to say that, yeah. you know, this this country is a lot more um, diverse. It is. Than one might think. And also that these... The larger, you know, narratives of history, because I'm sure that I don't I've never taught a U.S. survey because I don't do American history. But I'm sure that when you talk about the rise of the new right, you might you, you mean in every class, in every, you know, post construction, reconstruction, you talk about the rise of the new right at some point. Mm-hmm. This is very much part of that narrative. This mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the emphasis on the family is in response. Exactly. To. A fear of homosexuality and promiscuity and this AIDS mm-hmm. crisis. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. It's reactionary. It's reactionary yeah. to the rights movements of mm-hmm. the 60s and 70s, yeah. the, the feminist movements and the gay rights movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And civil rights movement. Everything. Yeah. So when we talk about, you know, when we talk about gay history, I think that's misleading because you can't really separate yeah, yeah, out yeah. Yeah. gay yeah. history from... The rest of history. History is just history. Everything, women's history is just history. Right. Black yeah. history is just history. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, that's why it's important to have, right now, it's important to have LGBTQ History Month and Women's History Month and Black History mm-hmm. Month. Until we get to the point where we don't have to have that anymore because right. it's so entrenched. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That that to try to tell the history of the rise of the new right without talking about those Mm-hmm. You know, without talking about Stonewall, sexual politics is yeah is disingenuous. Yeah, it is. It's missing something, right? Right. There is an article on Notches um, about this couple in the fifties, a gay couple uh-huh. living in the Midwest somewhere, in uh-huh. just like a regular small town, and they r- opened up a restaurant, um, and it was like a I don't know, it was like old-fashioned uh, Swedish food or something weird. Yeah. Um, but they they played the role of a husband and wife. Wild. And the people of the town were just like, okay. And they came and ate, like, yeah. every week. Yeah. And it was just a thing. Yeah. In this town, in the Midwest, where mm-hmm. you're like, what? Yeah. No way. It blew my students' minds. Right. I mean, I think that we often look back at, especially when it comes to rural America, mm-hmm. we, we we often look back and we think like, oh, so close-minded. Right. Um, of course, this would have made such a big deal. But just as today, you know, when people, when you know someone. Yeah. And you, someone's a part of your community or, you know, it. it All those strangers visited them too. That's interesting. Just randos coming through. I think it might have been a bed and breakfast. No, maybe not. I think I read this. Yeah, it yeah, was I really good. This. But, I mean, I think that speaks to this whole, like, part of Ellie's project is breaking down the assumption that just because we're talking about southwest rural Missouri doesn't mean that, obviously, that there there were gay people there. There were gay people there. Mm-hmm, so there's mm-hmm. that. But also that there was a burgeoning community. Mm-hmm. And it, in part, comes out of this kind of activism, but it there is a sense that things are not always so black and white in terms of how people react right. to um, sexual difference, to expressions of sexual love. Um, and just because 
we had this moment in the 80s where there was this hardening around heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. Right. Doesn't mean that was always the case. And certainly even in the 80s, it wasn't always the case everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean... Rock Hudson is a good example of that, mm-hmm. right? The Reagans knew he was gay. They knew yeah. he was gay forever. Everyone in Hollywood knew that that Rock Hudson was gay. It's Hollywood. Um, everyone was gay. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. For a little bit. Um, but like you said, this kind of backlash, this reactionary rise of this new super conservative um, politics relies on sort of backing away from that kind of pretending mm-hmm. that you don't see what you know is there and has always been there yeah. right it's it's kind of a distancing yourself from that that also made me think um about the fact that APO was founded by religious people yes including i think a pastor right yeah and i know Ellie elsewhere in the project talks about um very conservative religious women being involved in the in um, in relief work for people with AIDS, I think that a lot of it, you know, there are some, it's slightly problematic in that they're they're mostly kind of like giving their attention to those AIDS babies mm-hmm. rather than to the gay men. But I think that that's it. Also shows us the really complicated shades of gray when it comes to religious mm-hmm. people. Yeah, and. Even people who are part of these very conservative, very strict interpretation, fundamentalist, you know, churches, adhering to those beliefs is a lot harder when you're seeing people suffer. Yeah. Especially when you know those people and you love them. And it can, that can make you change. It can. It can also not. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it can also confirm your assumptions about the way that other people live their lives, right? Yeah. Like, you've brought this upon yourself because what you've done is deviant. Yeah. Um, that seems kind of self-explanatory. And I don't want to suggest that... Self-explanatory? The, yeah, self-explanatory. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to suggest that while... Because there was this burgeoning gay community that wasn't also violence against gay people. Oh, yeah. Like, hardcore... I mean, this is also... Springfield, Missouri is also what we call a sundown town, where mm-hmm. uh, if a black person was in the town after sundown, they would get lynched, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well into the early 20th century, mm-hmm. um, maybe longer. Um, so there was also a culture of violence against difference. That is mm-hmm. also true. Mm-hmm. But that this kind of sexual expression, community uh, connection can survive and thrive in those places is important to recognize and to think about as well. Yeah. it It's a good reminder of what I'm I'm struggling I'm struggling right now with my students <laughs> to to do this is to think about the history in nuanced terms. Mm-hmm. We really want and it's really easy with stories like this. Yes. to think about good guys and bad guys, evil mm-hmm. guys um and you know, not evil guys, righteous yeah. people, right? And right. The APO in this story could be the righteous and the conservatives could be the evil and that confirms kind of how we frame these things but it's way more complicated than that and some people you know were very very sweet and loving and took care of these babies that had aids but they condemned the gay men that had aids Mm -hmm. and then other people you know went against their religious convictions and helped gay people even though they believed that gay people were inherently sinful and human beings are immensely complex mm-hmm. and and we can't fall into the trap of um 
just kind of flattening out, ironing out all of the wrinkles of yeah. all of these stories. They and have also to kind of accept yeah. that there's complications. Yeah. And the human mind can bend to accept and believe many different things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Whether a little bit crazy or a lot crazy. Yeah. Yeah. For the better or for the worse. Anyway, so we are really glad that you joined us for this revised release of our APO episode. And a huge thanks to Ellie, to Elizabeth George, for supplying us with the research and interviews to rebuild this episode. And as you, blah, blah, and you all, hopefully, at this point, know Marissa, uh, Elizabeth, um, not uh, Ellie that we've been referencing, but Elizabeth Garner Masaryk from uh, History Buffs. And Avril and I are all relaunching this podcast this fall as Dig, a history podcast. Hopefully you've seen our silly promo video on Facebook and you're keeping up with all of our tweets and other social media activity. As Dig, we are going to continue to bring you these hard-hitting and deeply researched stories from the past. We are real historians, and that's what we do. Um, And we're going to organize our episode schedule a little bit differently than we did as history buffs. Instead of big, long breaks at winter and summer, we're going to have short seasons. We're calling them series with four episodes, one per week for four weeks in a row. And then we'll take two weeks off to prep another series and start all over again. And each of these series will have a common theme, and our first is sex, and they'll be kind of uh, whatever interesting stories on that topic that we dig up. As usual, if you have an idea for a future episode, or even if there's a bigger topic that you'd like to know more about, if you have questions, you have comments, you have concerns about any of our past episodes, feel free to write to us at hello at digpodcast.org. And we are now officially all migrated over to our new social media handle. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history. We love you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And please stay tuned this summer. Another updated and overhauled episode coming soon. Thanks for listening. Yay. But their apparent... But their apparent... (laughs) Apparent promise to me now. Because it was a man's name. I guess when my dad was there, maybe I told you this, they had this big tree on campus that was like symbolic or something. It was like a big, big deal. And somebody, because it's a forestry school, somebody chopped... There was like this big fight because I don't know if it was like people thought that it was unhealthy, the tree was sick or something. There was a big fight and somebody chopped down the tree in the middle of the night one night. And then what they do with it? Did they burn it and make it into s'mores? No, it was like just like an act of drunken vandalism. Like, it, yeah, it wasn't like a Not oh, we're tree. gonna secretly take it down. Like the, the the college had nothing to do with it. That's my only Paul Smith story. That and my dad was like, I was really grumpy the whole time I was there. I was really unhappy because all the girls were really ugly or they were lesbians. <laughs> there was two girls at the whole school. And they were ugly slash lesbians. So both were both lesbians and ugly, or just one was ugly and one was he lesbian? He didn't clarify. He was just mad that there weren't people there for him to hook up with. Well, he could have swung both ways in that time of his life. It was an experimentation phase. Not for him. <laughs> he missed out. I know. Even though He was, you yeah, know, would have worked because he also spent all that time on boats with other men. He 
really did mess out. Yeah, for like long periods of time. Weeks so many blowjobs could have been exchanged, I guess. This is a gross conversation. Somehow it always... <laughs> our, our outtakes always are... That's how you loosen yeah. up. Okay. Okay. Loose. <laughs> or Ellie's. What does that sound? It sounded just like a baby was crying in your in your house. Like loudly. In my house? <laughs> it was really weird. I was I was like, oh somebody's crying. And then I was like, no, that's not a thing. Pneumocystis carini pneumonia. Pneumocystis carine pneumocystis carini pneumonia. That sounded stupid. Called Let's just say it's been a long time <laughs> since there's been any random strange. <laughs> so I'm not up on the lingo. That's when not it comes that reason. To That's condoms. what he said when I was in college. Mm. Apparently, I just was approved. Well, yeah, come on. Which one of us was approved? All right. <laughs> Me. <laughs> okay, bringing it on back. Sorry. I wonder if he went to the back room of the video store or if he just got like all the videos from the front of the store that he knew would have nudity scenes and then took those nudity scenes, copied them onto a new VHS with like Sharon Stone opened her legs and basic instinct and then just like had a compilation what are those called? We have like a mixtape? Like a mixtape or like a okay. montage and then maybe he added his own music that's a lot of work all right, is this coming from someplace? Do you have experience with this? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.